Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So last week we went to trivia, and uh, we love trivia. We do. And this was kind of a big thing for us because it was our first really kind of going out to a public place and interacting with people other than waitresses or waiters or and so we go, and apparently they've been doing this trivia. It's it's in English for like 18 years, something like that. I don't know. I heard eight. Eight. Maybe that was it. Anyway, it's mostly uh, expats, and so it, it is all in English. And we went with our new friends, Adam and Jennifer, that we met at the grocery store. It's weird that we have friends. You know, it really is. We had to go to a, uh, an entirely different country to... To make friends. <laughs> so we go to this uh, the trivia thing, and dang it if we didn't win right out of the box. So now I feel obligated to return tonight to defend our title. It was really fun. It was so fun. I love winning. And we learned that Adam and Jennifer are smart, which is great that for helps. people that you're going to have on your trivia team. Yeah. Adam's like a former uh, CFO, and Jennifer is like a surgical nurse. So they have edumacations, and that helped us win. Yeah. We're very happy about that. Plus, you got a beer the size of your head. This was a beverage with an undertow. <laughs> <laughs> I have never in my... We'll post a picture. I have never in my life... Seriously, the size of like a, a bird bath full <laughs> of a delicious IPA. It was a bird bath IPA. So things are going pretty well. Pretty well, yeah. <laughs> and the further I got into that thing, the gladder I was that uh, we were paired up with people who were smart. <clears throat> Truth. Anyway, I got a story for you. And Yay. I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to do this if it's okay with you. Please do. Okay. All right. A couple of years back, I found myself deep in conversation with your, with your brother, Dennis. Mm-hmm. Dennis is quite an authority on all things related to First Nation peoples in our very own home state of Maine. He's he's quite well read in that area. And in most areas, in most actually. Areas, yeah. He's borderline genius. It's creepy. And I hate playing Scrabble with him. We need him on our trivia team. Mm. 
And when it comes to the Penobscot Nation, he's like a walking encyclopedia. Now, as we chatted, uh, Dennis delved into the enchanting world of Native American names and their literal translations. A lot of people struggle with main town names and stream names because they are First Nation names and they are long and confusing. Almost all of the counties are native names like my home county, Aroostook, or Penobscot County, or Passamaquoddy. You wouldn't believe how many spots in Maine are steeped in indigenous heritage. From the rustic Penobscot County to the winding Passamaquoddy River, the whole place is like a linguistic treasure hunt. Piscataquis. Piscataquis is another great one. It's a fun one. Ooh, Sagadahawk. A gunquit. Anyway, now my memory's playing tricks on me and I can't recall the exact name Dennis mentioned, but uh, this just blew me away. The name literally translates to the place where we catch sturgeon by torchlight. Now, take a moment and wrap your head around that. It's like it's like taking a time machine and peeking through the eyes of those who walked the lands centuries ago. You can almost see them standing by the river edge, flickering torches in hand, ready to haul in a sturgeon feast. Yeah. The whole revelation got me thinking. Not just about First Nation names here in the good old U.S., but uh, names all around the globe. It's like cracking open a dictionary that whispers tales from the past. Passagasa Keg. What? <laughs> Passagasa Keg. What about it? That's the name of the river is believed to mean a place for spearing sturgeon by torchlight. Oh, that's crazy. I love that. The Passamaquoddy Nation nestled right in Maine. Their name translates to Pollock spearers or those who have an uncanny knack for finding pollock i love that now it's interesting to note that their territory sprawls across the saint croix river watershed uh, practically hugging the corners of northeastern maine and uh, the new brunswick border it's like they've got the inside scoop on the local fish hotspot. <laughs> now Shifting gears to my neck of the woods, Holton, Holton, Maine, the Holton Band of Maliseets claim their territory along the St. John uh, River Valley. Uh, They're the guardians of the river's tributaries, and their name, it's pretty poetic. It means people of the beautiful river. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that make you want to grab a paddle and float downstream? It do. And the Penobscot Nation? Their name originally referred to a stretch of the Penobscot River, what we now call the Penobscot River. It's a wild place with rocky cliffs and dramatic drops into the water below. Penobscot translates to the oh-so-fancy rocky part or descending ledges. You can almost hear the echoes of ancient footsteps reverberating around those cliffs. I'm thinking of where the Penobscot and the Stillwater River meet. Oh, where I used to kayak? Right near Old Town, Maine. It's lovely through there. They also make great kayaks in Old Town. Old Town kayaks. World renowned. But don't go thinking it's only the First Nation folks with with nifty translations. Or breaking my heart. Hungary. Hungary, of all places, steps up to the plate with its own linguistic quirkiness. Uh, (laughs) There's this cool map that I stumbled upon, complete with wacky Hungarian place names translated into English. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, There is a disclaimer on it. It comes from a site called Earthly Mission. The disclaimer says, some might be a tad wonky, but hey, it's all in good fun. (laughs) First up, we've got towns named after people like Mark. Even whole fields 
dedicated to the big guy upstairs. Upstairs, There's a little village called Field of God or Town of Mark. Is Mark the same as God? I don't know if in their belief God's named Mark, but that would be cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> then things get really weird. Picture this. A town that goes by the name Seven. Just a single digit. Oh. Seven. Not written out? No. No, oh. just Seven. Living a numeric life. And just when you thought you couldn't get any quirkier, here's a spot. It's known as cuttings, Cutting a Smith, which oh. sounds like a euphemism of some sort. Venture a bit north, you'll discover towns named after Sizzling Bacon. Wait, it's called Sizzling Bacon? Yeah. Oh. And there's another one called Can't Stop Hurting. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you venture a bit south, you'll find gems like Bush, your mouth, and a nutty duo of, uh, of, of villages once called your nuts. <laughs> are your nuts and your mouth right next to each other? They are. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, there's also uh, a town called your testicle. Uh, and I don't know if it's a sister city with your nuts or your nuts is just like an insult about somebody's intelligence. Anyway, they must be in cahoots with each other. Probably. But there's more. Up north, there's a town called Legless and another one called Your Goats. But the piece de resistance. There is a town in Hungary that uh, literally translates into English as Old old Fart Russian Girl. (laughs) I mean, who doesn't want to visit that place? I definitely do. And a stone's throw away from Old Fart Russian Girl (laughs) is a hamlet known as Eat It. Oh, that's a hearty welcome. Heading west, the game continues with towns like My Huge Problem, Happy Wife Tree. And then there's a place on the map that says Courtyard. I'm not sure if it's a town or a Marriott property. I I didn't look that closely. But just a little bit northeast of Courtyard, there's a town called Stuffing the Emperor. Oh, oh my. (laughs) And that's not far from a town called he likes to push. What? <laughs> what? And then it's just a stone's throw and a quick pit stop at Beaver Meadow Marketplace. Oh, that sounds nice. Yeah, if you're into beaver-themed shopping. There's more, though. The sleepy hamlet of Pile of Nails beckons travelers to, the meta- <laughs> to its metallic embrace. And nearby, the charming hamlet of Push It, which is rumored to be the birthplace of salt and pepper. That's a rumor that I started just now. Just now. It's interesting because there's push it and he likes to push it. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. The list goes on. Bottom of the tent is a new place is a popular destination. That's the whole name yeah. is bottom of the tent is a new place. Yeah. And then <laughs> there's and then there's aerobic nun. I just see like 1980s <laughs> disco. And a nun with a full habit, but like like one of those headbands on and leg warmers. See how I'm bending? That's what makes it hip-hop. She's a maniac, maniac. At the convent. There's even a town called Shoot Croatians. Oh, that's not nice. Yeah. yeah. We've, we've also got a place called uh, Disease Sand. Pleasant. Yep. That's next to the village of You Slap It. He pushes it, you slap it. And then the real crowd pleaser, the sleepy hamlet of They Fuck. What? Yeah. Okay. Remember, these are reverse mirror translations, so take them with a 
a grain of linguistic salt. Sure. All in all, Hungary seems to be the kind of place where street names and village names are just as curious as the landmarks themselves. So there you have it, a linguistic whirlwind that'll make you want to pack your bags and explore the world one quirky name at a time. I love it. I have to assume that the people in the town of Vefak, population. Like population is growing yeah. constantly. Yeah, yeah. Probably you knew true. what I was getting yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got my information from Earthly Mission, Forbes, Mental Floss, Expedia, and uh, your, your brother, Dennis. <laughs> He's a source of a lot of information. Including how to hook up a gas range. Thanks, Thanks Dennis. Dennis. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash 
oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Here's something to bear in mind next time you're walking through New York City. The walk buttons at an intersection do not actually trigger a walk light. The light changes are controlled by computers, and the buttons are simply placebos for pedestrians. Kayla sent us an email, episode 565, Jethro, talking about the Google Translate, not translating what he meant to say. It reminded me of a story my boyfriend told me a couple of days ago. He's a mechanic, and he works with some diverse individuals who speak different languages than he does, and one of them, he has to translate everything he says into his phone, and then shows my boyfriend so my boyfriend will understand him that's kind of what we do here mm-hmm. well i guess he needed to borrow one of my boyfriend's tools an extension for a ratchet that he was using but my boyfriend could not decipher what the guy needed because the translation came out quote i need the long tail for the deep nozzle <laughs> and it took my boyfriend about 10 minutes to figure out what it was he needed <laughs> and probably to stop laughing right kayla Kaylin sent us a message. Does it count as a box of oddities effect if you're likely related to someone who's the subject of a story? Yes. Listening to box 366, my grandfather's last name is Swope, which is not a very popular last name. So, Rebecca writes, hey, Kat and JG, it seems I've gone from a listener that rarely reaches out to you guys to one who does it frequently. And by the way, Rebecca... We love that. We love that. Your story in box 565 about the wampus cat made me want to share a tale from my hometown about a vampire beast, a cat-like creature that terrorized the small town of Blandenboro, North Carolina for about two weeks at the beginning of 1954 and then was never heard from again. One of the theories is that it was a wampus I've attached a write-up that I put together a while back regarding the beast, as well as some newspaper clippings for your enjoyment. Continuing to fly my freak flag high, Becca. Thank you, Becca. Wow, she's pretty thorough. Yeah. TJ wrote us, Hey, Kat and JG, just wanted to drop you a quick note and let you know your main freaks miss you. Okay, enough of that gross shit. (laughs) I just wanted to share my favorite thing to do on Saturday evening is to get baked and listen to you guys. (laughs) I enjoy them on a whole new level. Best part, I get to enjoy them twice because usually I have to listen a second time to ensure I didn't miss anything. (laughs) Love you guys. So happy you've made it to your new home safely. P.S. Below is a picture of using Twizzlers to measure my space for a cabinet <laughs> in my office. Look at it. Oh, that's perfect. And then uh, today, Twizzlers came up on the Freaks group and I misspelled Twizzlers and someone shamed me. Oh no, Twizzler yeah. shame. That's okay. I honestly didn't know there were two Zs. I did, but every time I read it, I, I, I would fall asleep. Oh man, that wasn't funny. <laughs> That was terrible. I'm way overtired. I've been reading too many Twizzler packages. Leave me alone. (laughs) Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, And of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. What do you got for me, girl? Francis Egerton, the eighth Earl of Bridgewater, was born in London in 1756. He was the younger son of John Egerton, Bishop of Durham, and Anne Sophia Grey. After receiving his education at Eton and Christchurch, Oxford, he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1776. In 1780, he became a Fellow of All Souls College, and in 1781, he was elected as a Fellow of the Royal Society. In 1823, Francis inherited his title and a significant fortune from his brother, the 7th Earl of Bridgewater. Prior to that, he served as a Church of England clergyman, holding the positions of rector. (laughs) I didn't even know her. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, his duties associated with these roles were carried out by proxy rather than by Francis himself. After seceding his brother, John, in earldom, in 1823, Francis spent the latter part of his life in Paris. It's not known exactly why he moved to Paris, especially since it's reported he, on multiple occasions, said he didn't like it there. But it's likely that the city's cultural and social offerings did lure him. His time in Paris added an international dimension to his life. And of course, FHE at this point was very, very wealthy, and that allowed him the great privilege of pursuing lifelong academics and indulgences. That's the thing about aristocrats. You know, they can just flit about learning and trying things. I'm a big fan of aristocratic flitting. Lord Bridgewater collected books and manuscripts extensively, which he housed at his estate. It's now known as the Bridgewater Collection, and it contains works on various subjects, including theology, science, and philosophy. Lord Bridgewater was also a huge patron of the arts. He was a generous patron, supporting various artists, writers, musicians, including commissioning works and providing financial aid. He was a fellow of both the Royal Society and the Society of Antiquaries. Lord Bridgewater's most renowned contribution was his sponsorship of the Bridgewater Treatises. In his will, he allocated funds for the publication of a series of scientific works that aimed to demonstrate the existence and attributes of God through natural theology. He believed that science and religion were one in the same. Just two different perspectives, two different interpretations. Yes. Hello, quantum physics. Now, all of these things are really interesting. What a a life, right? But that's 100% not why we're going to talk about Lord Bridgewater today. Is the reason we're talking about Lord Bridgewater today 
just an opportunity for you to use the word treatises. I wish I never had to use that word again. I hate it. (laughs) I want to say treatises. It just sounds fancier. Is that not right? I mean, I just, I'm confused by it. If you were an aristocratic flitter, you would be saying treatises, I think. (laughs) I have so rarely flitted. I used to flit mostly on the weekends, but now I have a bad back. Lord Bridgewater had several interesting and some might say eccentric habits. He had a fascination with canals. His dad built one. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that would make sense, right? But he would often ride a barge pulled by six horses on land. Okay, so the barge wasn't in a canal. No, he just liked it. Okay. Were there wheels on the barge? Because technically that's a wagon. No, the wheels were on the bus. And they went round. Yeah, 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 Um, I found a really interesting article about the life of Lord Bridgewater in the Lancaster Gazette. And it was from many years ago. It was one of those things that I have to pay to access, you know, those things. Better be good. Well, no, it made me angry. It had the smallest (laughs) writing in the history of mankind. And I started to cry a little bit because I knew there was good stuff in there. And it was just, And after referring to like multiple dukes and lords and stuff, and then they would just say the Lord. And it's like, Which lord? Which one, though? Mm. It's hard to know, especially with the tiny writing. Anyway, goddammit. The Earl of Bridgewater was said to be a man of few acquaintances. Those that he did keep in his life, he treated very well. One example involved a book that he borrowed from a friend. When it was time to return the book, quote, he carried his politeness so far as to send it back, or rather, have it conducted home in a carriage. He gave orders that his two most stately steeds be caparisoned under one of his chariots, and the volume, reclining at ease in Milord's Landau, arrived attended by four footmen in costly livery at the door of its astounded owner. So rather than like, oh, hey, here's that book I borrowed, he got his horses and his footmen dressed to the nines, Mm -hmm. laid the book on the seat in a cushion and sent the carriage off. He didn't go with it. No. Just the book was returned by way of carriage. I love this. Uh, But just because he was polite didn't mean that he was a pushover. When Paris was in the process of being redesigned to meet Napoleon Bonaparte's vision, many streets and street names were altered. But when Napoleon's men arrived near Hotel Egerton with the intention of altering the layout of the area, they were quickly sent packing. Every time you say the name of that place... I think you're going to say Hotel Eggersuit. Eggersuit. He's wearing Eggersuit. He's sewering sugar water. Lord Bridgerton liked things the way he liked things. And he wasn't going to have anyone, even Napoleon Bonaparte, changing them. Like I said, he knew what he liked. Egerton made a decision to relocate the entire household, the cooks and the help and Mm. the horse people and all that. Okay, so he wanted to move everyone, the whole household from Paris to the countryside for a few months. So there were extensive preparations that had to take place. His servants spent weeks packing everything necessary for the move. And on the day of departure, an impressive sight unfolded. 16 luggage carriages and 30 servants on horseback, led by the Earl and his dogs. They departed, but much to the surprise of his neighbors, the grand procession returned later that day. It turned out they stopped for lunch, and Lord Bridgerton didn't like the food or the service that they were offered at a nearby inn. And he was like, oh, this isn't a good sign. Let's head back. (laughs) See, that stresses me out so much. 
I mean, I'm stressed to the teeth right now because we have to move out of our Airbnb in an hour. Yeah, we really are cutting this close. Mm. <laughs> Francis Eggersuit had a deep affection for boots, but he also indulged himself by wearing a fresh pair of boots every day. And he'd just throw them out? No, the no. No, no. Okay. After wearing each pair of boots, he meticulously preserved them, arranging them in a specific order and strictly instructing that no one should touch them. Then he derived immense pleasure from observing the condition of his boots, finding delight in reminiscing about the days gone by Hmm. as he surveyed his collection. Wow. It's said that this was one of the ways that he kept track of the passage of time, not just by how many boots were lined up, but he claimed it enabled him to calculate the date by the amount of mud or dust on each pair. Ah, yes, that's the day I wore those boots and I went for a ride in the country. You know, that kind of thing. That's um, interesting. Yeah. His fondness was so great that he went to great lengths to ensure that his dogs were outfitted with boots paying a considerable price for them. Not only did he provide boots for each of his dogs four feet, he ensured that they were really nice boots. Mm. And of course, that makes perfect sense because the dogs had to be well-dressed as the Earl had a particular and lavish practice when it came to dining arrangements. As I said, he didn't really love the company of people, but he still wanted to have big fancy dinners. So he would host extravagant dinners for his dogs. (laughs) These dog dinners were a unique spectacle that showcased not just his affection for his pets and his penchant for eccentricity, but his wealth. He spared no expense. During these special occasions, a table would be set with fine china, silverware, elegant tablecloths. His dogs would be seated at the table with their designated place settings. The Earl would personally oversee the proceedings to ensure that his four-legged guests were treated with the utmost care and attention. The menu for these dog dinners were crafted with great care, consisting of meat, vegetables, and other delicacies, but in a gourmet style, tailored to suit the canine palate. Now, you said they had silverware settings. Dogs don't have opposable thumbs, Mm -hmm. so that was just for show? Probably. Or did he have, like, servants who would cut the steak up and feed it to the dogs? I didn't read anything about anyone feeding the dogs. Okay. They sat at the table and they dined themselves. Did they play poker afterwards? (laughs) Because that's been documented. Poker, I wouldn't imagine, because these dogs were expected to behave really well. And that might have been looked down upon. I suppose. The bulldog, always doubling down. Now, the thing is, these dogs, as I said, they were expected to behave well. But if one of them happened to break the rules, there was a punishment waiting for them. The next day, the (laughs) dog... The dog that didn't behave well had to eat out in the barn, dressed like a servant. He didn't get to wear his nice boots or anything. Oh, no. Yeah. They were banished to the boring room. They had to eat their meal in shame. Meanwhile, their spot at the table stayed empty until they earned their pardon and were allowed to return to the fancy dress dinners. Now, the Earl would also send his dogs out for exercise, naturally. The people of Paris would see a grand carriage setting out along Rue Saint-Henri, carrying several dogs reclining on silk cushions. And when the carriage reached a large public park, the dogs were given their daily exercise. Should it start to rain, their minders would trot alongside them with umbrellas. How many dogs were there? Unclear. Enough for a fancy dinner. 
I didn't find anything about how they dressed for exercise. I know that they dressed in fine clothes for dinners. Silk finery. Right. But I don't know if they had like velour tracksuits for park time (laughs) or... Adidas sweatbands. Right. Now, as I mentioned, the Earl wasn't big on the company of humans. He never married. He had no children. He died in 1803 at the age of 64, taking his dukedom with him as the last of his line. And he had a pretty unique will. He wrote it four years before he passed away, and it stated that his house in Paris should continue to be managed as if he were alive for two months after his death. It doesn't say why. He left most of his estate to academic or charitable organizations. And on top of that, he made sure that every servant would be provided with a morning suit, a fancy hat, and three pairs of top-notch worsted stockings. That was thoughtful. Yeah. What'd the dogs get? Unclear. But I know that a lot of money was left to make sure that his things that he cared about in life were taken care of afterwards. So I'm, I'm sure that everything worked out pretty well. Plus, those who remained after his death could have just sold off their boots and <laughs> they would have been fine. Can you imagine the estate sale afterwards? Uh, what are we going to do with these 34,000 pairs of lightly used footwear? Lord Bridgewater may have died, but his contributions to society and his many eccentricities means that he lives on, in a way. He sounded pretty cool. I I would have liked to party with that dude. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that was noted in a lot of the articles I read was that he was obsessed with cleanliness and he washed his hands multiple times a day, which doesn't seem like a lot uh, of times a day to wash your hands. Given the, the period in which he lived, probably right. it was. Yeah. Because they took a bath once a week, maybe. I think what I'm trying to say is that people in the 1700s smelled bad. But I love how they took care of their dogs. I got my information from history.co.uk, greatbritishlife.co.uk, jerrywalton.com. And as much as I could glean out of the Lancaster Gazette and its tiny, tiny writing. Well, as we mentioned, this is the final episode we're recording in our Airbnb. I actually just got a message from Sebastian. The lord of our Airbnb? Yes. Uh, He wants to know when we're going to get out of here. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh... Thank you for putting up with uh, the echoey kind of acoustics that that we've had to subject you to over the last few episodes as we recorded here in the Airbnb. On the floor. On the floor. Next to the bathroom. Where, where, where there's really nothing soft to dampen the sound. <laughs> um, but we promise it'll get better. And maybe we'll get chairs. Fingers crossed. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so... Let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. 
theboxofoddities.com. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.